This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Some things are slow, like snail races. Other things are fast, like Xfinity XFi. Get fast speeds, even when everyone is online, working to make Wi-Fi simple, easy, awesome. More at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. The film Wildlife tells the story of a marriage in crisis in 1960s Montana. Based on a novel by Richard Ford and directed by actor Paul Dano, it's told from the point of view of the young teenager watching his family fall to pieces. Played by Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, the couple struggles with his desire to provide and her need to look outside her home for happiness. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. We're talking about wildlife on this episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour, so come right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's Contoto, presenting Brown Love, a new podcast that aims to bring together the best and brightest of Latino Hollywood to get real about the industry and all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Each week, the show features a roundtable of Latino actors, including Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black and Jessica Marie Garcia from On My Block. New episodes of Brown Love drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now where you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You just met NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Also with us is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair today, it's always a treat to have with us our friend Katie Presley. Hi, Katie. Howdy. Katie comes from, among other places, among other homes, not exactly Montana, right? My people are actually exactly from Montana. Oh, they are from yep. Montana. Yep. So one of the things I find fascinating about this film is that the backdrop of Montana is present because there are wildfires in the film and mm-hmm. because you sometimes go out there, but a lot of it takes place in the house and they make very judicious use of that backdrop. Katie, what did you think of the use of the kind of the Montana setting in the film? Yeah, so Montana is the big sky state and it takes place in Helena. So it's town. I mean, it's the city. Mm-hmm. But immediately, like one block off of Main Street, you're in the country. And in Montana, the country is so big. Montana in this film was like the character that made all the other characters look like a bunch of nothing. Yeah. You know? And so when you have all of this drama in the house, if you're me and you're thinking about the out of doors all the time, which I think you're supposed to be, the claustrophobia of indoors is heightened by the fact that outside you know there is just expanse. Yeah. Yeah. To just set up what's happening in this film a little bit more, it's wildfire season and Jake Gyllenhaal has lost his job at a golf course and wants to go off and fight the fire because the well-known habit of the men who fight the wildfires is that you go fight the wildfires until it starts to snow Mm -hmm. and then they end and you can come home. So he wants to kind of go and fight the wildfire until the snow comes, which becomes a sort of a, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it's a a metaphor for everything (laughs) that's happening, but it becomes kind of, you know, the approaching wildfire, the wait for the snow to come. And ultimately the kid, Joe, in the house with his mother, waiting for the father to come back, but maybe not. Glenn, what did you think of this film? Well, I had read the Richard Ford novel a long, long time ago. First, I should say, this film will be talked about at Oscar season. Uh, Your parents and your aunts and uncles are going to ask about it at Thanksgiving dinner, and they will get the name wrong. They're going to call it Wildfires. It is wildlife. (laughs) Just prepare yourself for it. (laughs) 
they're going to screw it up because it's inevitable. The novel kind of blended in my mind with a lot of other memoirs and autographical novels from sensitive straight white dudes who mm-hmm. are writing as kids, watching their parents or watching the outside world. You're Tobias Wolf, you're Frank Conroy, Rick Moody, Stuart Dybeck, Robert Stone. It blended, right? And I think this is a very risky film to adapt because even though Richard Ford is a kind of minimalist objectivist, his writer's voice is how you're seeing the events, right? Yeah. He, he, mm-hmm. He's striving to be a kind of a clear window pane through which you see the events. And he strives to keep judgment out of the book. But when it does bubble up, it's devastating. Like the scene in the book where the kid sends his father off on the wagon and the father goes away to fight the wildfire. The kid thinks to himself that he was happy, that he was going to a fire now to risk whatever he cared about risking. Hmm. Oof, right? Yes. I mean, like uh-huh. that, that sounds kind of passive aggressive just out of context. But in context, without all that other kind of absolutely clear, pellucid prose, you're like, wow. If we got that moment in narration in this film, mm-hmm. it would sit there mm-hmm. because it just wouldn't work. I was so happy when this film got like three minutes in and I realized there was not going to be any not narration. That's yeah. uh, very important. So Ed Oxenbold, that's where all of that work, that yeah. narrative work is being he done. The, he plays the, the kid. kid. He plays the kid. Joe. And it feels like 40% of this film is just a close-up of that kid's face. Yeah. Uh, it's all reaction shots, which, of course, is the one thing you don't get when you read the novel. You get the events. You do not get a a real good sense of what's happening to this kid because he's telling you the story. After a while, you start to think, oh, how many different ways are there to look worried? Oh, there's another one. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I think what the crowd that I was with interpreted that as and what I interpreted as was you are seeing this marriage only as this kid sees it. You don't really have any scenes where away from the kid, you have the couple arguing. The main argument that they have about the father going off to fight fires, you pick it up only when the kid gets home. Yeah. And there's clearly already been a massive amount of arguing that if it didn't have that POV as part of the story, you would see a big fight between Hall and Carrie Mulligan before it blows up. And I want to come back to you in a second, but I want to get over to Stephen. Yeah. What did you what did you think of this? I was really impressed with how so many of these shots were framed. It's a very, very pretty movie to look at. It does a beautiful job of capturing the way small town life can incorporate all these views of expanses and also feel incredibly, uh, as Katie said, claustrophobic, that you can get a sense of the limited choices that these characters feel they are facing. And as a portrait of divorce, I was really interested in and moved by the way this film presents the relationships between each parent and the kid. What you often don't see in movies about kids who are going through divorce is the phenomenon of a parent oversharing with their kid because they have no one else to talk to. Yep. And both parents do that to this kid mm-hmm. all through this movie. And you get a sense, you know, watching it of like, Oh, that poor kid. Oh, that poor kid. Oh, that poor kid. (laughs) And sometimes it's played for a kind of a squirmy laugh Mm -hmm. in this extended, very awkward scene involving his mom. But then, like, he meets up with the dad and there's another... The kid has to manage his parents' feelings again. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the story of this kid having to be there for his parents when his parents should be there for him. That's what has really stuck with me about this film. And I think one of my favorite things about the story, when I first started watching it, because I think this is sort of how I'm trained to think about divorce films and parenting films, particularly if they're set as far back as 1960, 
I'm either looking for it to be about the dad is a jerk and the mom is long-suffering and resilient, or the mom is a jerk and the dad is just trying his best. And neither one of those dynamics is the one. There were times in this film where I thought, oh, where they're going is that the mother is decent and resilient and the father is a flake. And there were moments where I thought, oh, no, where they're going is that the mother is inappropriate with him and, you know, kind of is all over the place and inconsiderate of him. And the father, it's actually going to turn out, is sort of, in the end, the good one. And that'll be what it is. And it's neither. It's neither of those things. You can't get comfortable in either of the parents being the good guy or the bad guy. And I also really appreciated that Gene, Carrie Mulligan's character, falls apart while we don't have the foil of the father. And so we have to judge her or not judge her just because we know what she's going through. Mm -hmm. Stephen was talking about this movie as a portrait of a small town. To me, the most detailed portrait of a small town comes in the fact that her only friend is her kid. Mm -hmm. So she has to tell him, well, she certainly doesn't have to, but she does (laughs) uh, tell him really inappropriate things and take him really inappropriate places and do inappropriate things around and sort of in front of him. Uh, I was really pleased with the complexity of her character being allowed to make us so uncomfortable. Because her reactions are not stock. Her actions might be. I mean, her actions you probably have seen before. And this is why a plot summary of this film does it a grave disservice because... She may or may not have an affair, spoiler, whatever. But um, Well, it's the first sentence of the novel. Uh, yeah, okay, right. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> this film starts out very like the father and son are playing catch outside and she's making dinner. That's where we start, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we go someplace else and we get there because when the father decides to go away, something inside her quietly, quietly, quietly snaps. And it's not outrage. In a scene following that, the kid asks her a question and she says, why does it matter? That's the break, right? She goes to a place of sort of existentialist crisis, not rage, hedonism, anything like that. It is much more subtle than that. And that's, you know, they have this giant freaking metaphor in the middle of this movie, in the middle of this novel, too. And yet we don't see it much. And when we do see it, we do see it in a a way that it's... It's kind of held back from us for a long time in a reaction shot from the kid uh, again. And while the mom is saying things that do not sound like the things a mom would say, we are we are forced to confront her and try to figure out what's going on while this thing, this giant wildfire is burning everything to the ground. Handled that big honking metaphor in a really clever way. Yeah. One of the things I like about the film so much is that it feels personal in a way that sometimes first time features from first-time directors, which Paul Dano is here, don't feel. I think that the screenplay, which is by him and his partner Zoe Kazan, is so, like, it's so intimately made, and the film is so intimately directed and so patient. And a lot of times with first-time films, particularly from actors or people who are already somewhat known, you'll see a fair amount of kind of showiness Mm -hmm. or or a... a desire to kind of be directory. It's not that the film is not mindfully directed, but it didn't feel frantic to me. It didn't feel frantic to prove its directorness. Mm-hmm. The thing that I noticed the most visually when I watched it, and I was very much under the influence of some of those like Tom and Lorenzo posts about sharp objects and Mad Men and some of those wonderful things where they talk about what people are wearing and what matches and doesn't. The use of color in this film is really interesting. If you go into it looking for that, Mm -hmm. you will see 
the color blue is sort of the color of the dad and the kid and the original notion of the family. And there's a moment when Carrie Mulligan, who has been wearing sort of neutrals throughout the first part of the film, suddenly shows up in bright blue. And it's when she's going to go and try to get a job the first time. And it's so, I mean, you always, I always worry about taking these kinds of things too far because you feel like that, you know, the people responsible for it are going to say, yeah, you're reading way too much into this. But there are also a couple of different moments when Carrie Mulligan in particular will suddenly be wearing a very discordant color that you've seen nowhere else in the film. There's a moment where she comes in in sort of a cowboy inspired Mm -hmm. um, ensemble with like a Western style bright purple top that has nothing to do with any of these kind of muted colors that have been in the film up to that point. So if you do see it, I encourage you to kind of go in looking at colors and thinking about where is this color at this time? Why is it this color? What is the kid wearing? And I think those are the <laughs> it's, kinds... It's a look that says, please stop. <laughs> it, it is, mm-hmm. in a way, and it's thoughtfully done. Light as well, I thought was mm-hmm. really great. There are a lot of really dark shots, and you don't know why, and it's because what's about to be shown to you in light will be stunning. At one point, there's a shot where... Um, Gyllenhaal goes out to smoke a cigarette and you think, oh, it's dark because you get that cool I lit a cigarette thing. But then like, psych, the camera pans and it's a stunning Montana sunset. Mm -hmm. The way that the human drama is sometimes in the dark was fascinating. Yeah, this film has a protagonist that is acted upon and that's always tricky. But the whole point of the film is that his parents are bringing him into their lives in ways that they should not. And they both do it at Bill Camp's house. (laughs) Bill Camp plays... (laughs) an acquaintance of the mom and both moments of just uncomfortableness and of of too much intimacy with their parents Mm -hmm. happens at the exact same location Mm -hmm. in very, very different ways based on who these characters are. It's exactly what you want out of a movie. Yeah. And I was also interested in the fact that the first place in the film that I thought the kid is unsettled by what his mother is doing while his father is away. So when he comes into the living room of the house and his mother is sitting there talking to this guy played by Bill Camp, who, you know, he knows who it is. It's a guy she knows, but she has her shoes off. (laughs) And I feel like the detail that she has her shoes off is where the kid has this moment of being like something is wrong. Those little details give you that instant feeling of the kid's awareness. And I don't know... You know, directorially, there are ways that you subtly draw attention to that kind of thing so that it doesn't seem too much like, you know. Yeah, there's no close up on her ankles. I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. Wildlife is going to be opening sort of gradually in more and more places. And if you don't get a chance to see it in a theater, be aware of it. Look for it. It will be around. Uh, But if you get a chance to see it, I think on a big screen, it's worth it. And Carrie Mulligan especially is going to be talked about uh, for the next few months for Mm -hmm. reasons that will be apparent. Boy, she is good in this movie. Yeah. She is great in this movie. So is Gyllenhaal. I have to say, Jake Gyllenhaal makes movies sometimes where he's not afraid not to be the most interesting thing in the film (laughs) in a way that I really like. That's happened with him a few times. That brings us to the end of our show. You can follow Katie at Love is Maroon. Thank you so much, Katie, for being here. Thank you. It's always a joy. And of course, thank you for listening. We will be back here on Friday talking about the haunting of Hill House. (laughs) And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps more folks to find the show. We will see you all right back here on Friday. 
Aretha Franklin, the Jackson 5, Al Green, Chaka Khan. Those are just a few of the artists in a new collection of largely unseen photographs from the golden age of soul, R&B, and funk. Stories from the photographer who captured all of them on the latest episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. <laughs> 